Welcome to the Saddle Hunter Podcast. We're filling the airwaves with nonstop saddle hunting propaganda. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Greg. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of the Saddle Hunter Podcast. We have a really cool guest this episode. We're talking with Taylor Chamberlain, uh, the urban sportsman. I'm pretty pumped about it. It's a great conversation, and uh, he's a super smart guy and is a very good hunter. He has killed more deer than I probably will ever ever kill in my life, uh, so it's going to be pretty cool to hear from Taylor. But first, Scott, how you doing, man? I'm hanging in there. Uh, how are you? I'm doing all right. I know you've been sick lately. What's uh, what's going on with that? Are you back uh, back up and at them, or are you still struggling? Yeah, uh, I'm like getting back up and at them. I'm still uh, a little bit lacking on energy levels now, but uh, as most of the users on the forum or the listeners on the forum know, I picked up Koksaki from my daughter. And of course, you know, she was over it in two or three days and I was out of work for a week and a half. Oh, that is brutal. That's not a fun thing to go through. My kids had it, uh, and definitely not fun. No, it, it was miserable. I, I would not wish this upon anyone. Um, it, it just, it really hit me hard. And the worst part about it was that was uh, a full week of PTO that's going to take away from my hunting time. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. It's like I almost, now that I have a, a, a kid, it's like I have to build that certain amount of PTO days in for sick days that I'm going to get from her. Oh, it's brutal. Brutal for sure. And then, I mean, not to pile on the bad luck, but then you had some, a tree fall in your yard, right? Yeah. That came down during, uh, one of the Nor'easters we had like about, it's been there for about a month. So I finally, we had some nice weather after being home from work this weekend, I was feeling a lot better and I decided to start to tackle it. Mm, brutal what you have to chainsaw the whole thing up or what yeah yeah i got i went out and bought a chainsaw and i was breaking it down so that was a good portion of my weekend doing that man so i i guess i don't even have to ask the question but i'm assuming you haven't been turkey hunting right no our turkey season isn't even open actually uh actually uh saturday was youth day so um actually today's monday today is the first day of turkey season but obviously i am uh, not taking off work to go. So I'm hoping to get out Saturday. Okay, cool. I've been a few times. Uh, I went with uh, my brother down in Florida when I was there for Easter. Uh, my brother and I went one morning and we heard some gobbles and we got on some birds, but we couldn't seal the deal. And then I've been a couple of times in Georgia here at my house uh, but no luck, man. I haven't, I haven't heard much activity here in Georgia. I haven't hunted hard to be honest. Uh, I haven't had a whole lot of time either. I haven't been sick, but just work's been crazy and a lot of stuff going on around here. And all my free time has just been eaten up with other responsibilities. So I haven't uh, been able to chase those thunder chickens very much. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I got a lot of stuff going on too. Um, I'm like I said, I'm hoping to get out Saturday morning and then for our season, there's four Saturdays. Um, the following week I'm working all weekend. So that weekend shot for Turkey hunting. So that, that'll leave me two Saturdays in May that hopefully I can go. And then actually, 
uh, I think starting last year or the year before, they opened up our the last two weeks of our season to all-day hunting. So I might grab a uh, one of those last-week permits and try to get out after work a couple days. All right. Cool. Have you uh have you done any postseason scouting or tree prep since we talked last? Had our had our last podcast about postseason scouting? I, I honestly I don't think so. I think the last podcast was on um, probably the last day I was able to get out because we had Easter and then we had uh, my wife is Russian Orthodox, so the following week we had another Easter, and that was when I got sick, and that's been my last two weeks. So I. Uh, I'm glad that I had some really productive scouting in the time that I was out there because the last few weeks have been shot for me. That's brutal. Um, I, uh, I've done quite a bit of prep this year. I think I've prepped 10 trees thus far and I've done a lot of scouting. I got into a lease this year, actually, I'm going to be hunting some private ground on top of my public land hunting that I do, but yeah, I'm in a lease, uh, really because I wanted to be able to set up trees and leave stuff in the woods for my kids. And the public ground where I've been hunting, it's just kind of loaded with people. And I've, I've always been nervous to set up trees ahead of time unless they were in really hard to reach places. So mm-hmm. when I go in with my kayak and I go on the river and I'm hunting islands or, or just kind of far away places where people can't really access it from the mainland that well, I don't have a problem setting up back there and leaving sticks and stuff in the woods, but I'm afraid to do it close to the road or to places that are kind of easy access. And it's hard to get my kids way back there. I mean, I can't, I can't really get them to trudge through the swamps and stuff. It's just, it's just not practical for me. So I went ahead and made the, made the uh, jump into a lease this year. It's a pretty inexpensive lease. So I didn't feel too bad about doing it, but it's about 5,000 acres. And the great part is literally across the street from my neighborhood. So three minute drive and I'm there, I can have spots prep. So, you know, in a late afternoon, early season, I can come and grab my son or my daughter and we can go to a spot that I'll have already set up with a, a ladder. We can climb it quickly. I'll have it prepped with platforms. And so we can just throw on the saddle at the truck and, and jump in the tree and be in a tree and probably less than 15 minutes from my front door. So that's going to be cool. I'm pretty pumped about that. And uh, that's really where I've been focusing on, on the private land spot is setting up places that will work well for my kids. Yeah, that's awesome. That sounds like a really good deal. That's a lot of land really close to home. I know. I mean, you really couldn't beat it. So, uh, and like I said, it wasn't very much money. So I got in pretty cheap and you know, it's, it's quick, it's easy. If I want to go get a quick morning hunt in, you know, on a Saturday or something before we do family time, then I can just go do that. And I don't have to worry about always loading up the kayak and headed to the river. I'm still going to do that, but that'll be reserved for for times when I can spend a little bit more time in the woods that day. Oh yeah. You definitely have to to pick and choose um, when you can hunt certain spots. Like I got this one spot that's a two mile hike back and like, it's really only a Saturday afternoon spot because I can't get there and hunt it after work. Uh, I don't want to shoot one back that far on a Sunday night when I have to make sure I'm in work the next morning. And um, if it's an afternoon spot, you know, it's just, that limits me to a Saturday or a day that I'm off of work. So I, I hear you. It's nice to have a good selection of different types of spots to use. Yeah. And 
uh, I'm actually corning these spots up. It's legal on private land in Georgia to use to use bait. So I'm going to corn these places up because, I mean, really they're for my kids. I mean, if I shoot some does or whatever, that's great. And I mean, if a big buck walks out while, while we're hunting, that's great too. You know, we'll shoot them over bait. I don't really have a ethical or moral objection to hunting over bait. It's not my preferred way, but you know, if I'm taking my kids and I want it to be fun and you know, it's going to be a quick hunt or something, I just, I want to make sure they see deer so I can get them hooked on hunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. Definitely. And you got to shoot a deer because you're getting a lot of crap on the forum for, uh, for putting up some zeros in the contest lately. Yeah, I have put up two zeros. Uh, well, no, the first year I only, I only posted a doe. Uh, I didn't shoot a buck. That was my first season in Georgia, my first full season in Georgia. And I was really just kind of learning. I passed on some small deer that some of those other yahoos shoot and then give me, give me crap for, but Hey, whatever, uh, to each his own. But yeah, so I've, I've passed up quite a few small deer, uh, small bucks, I should say. And and then last season, man, I had a rough year. Um, I screwed the pooch on two shooter bucks in Georgia, which the furthest shot was about 28 yards. So I should have been able to make that, but I just, I screwed it up. I not, I didn't make, I didn't miss or didn't make a bad shot. I just didn't even get a shot off. And then the second buck that I rattled in, uh, he spot, he spotted me getting the camera in place to try to get him on film to get the shot on film and i screwed that up so that was number two for the season and then my brother and i jumped in the car and drove to illinois on a whim and hunted public ground there and everybody should know that story i made a bad shot on a really big deer 140 150 uh it was a big deer and i made a bad shot i shouldn't have taken the shot uh yeah but that's uh i had a rough deer season last year hopefully this one's better yeah well it'll be here before you know it um, so you just got me thinking we should post a thread on the forum about this is I'd be very interested to know how many, uh, shot opportunities like our general forum population gets at a mature buck during the year. So h- how many, uh, typical, typical opportunities do you think you get? I would probably say at a mature buck, uh, not necessarily a big trophy buck, but a mature buck. Um, I'm going to say, let, I mean, let's, let's quantify that a little bit. What, what do we want to say? Uh, three-year-old or yeah, two and a half I would, I would say uh two and a half or three and a half i, I mean, mean if you're on public land in the south i mean where i'm in the south and no ag and stuff a two and a half year old is you don't see those you know all that often i might have so we'll see last year i had two two shooter bucks one i'm pretty sure was at least three and the second one was i'm pretty sure two but still uh two shooter bucks in a season i mean that's without bait all public land mm-hmm. um yeah that I, I would say two to three if i'm lucky yeah. Yeah. I was, i'm right there with you actually i i find that i get uh typically one to two shot opportunities at a mature buck uh each season and if um and you got to make the most of those opportunities because you have so so few of them yeah Tell me about it. Now, this year I feel like I'm in a better position because the first two seasons in Georgia, I was really just learning how it works. You know, I'm learning the land, how to access it, how to use the land, how the deer use the land, what they're feeding on, you know, you know, so forth and so on. The same things that everyone goes through. It was just my first year doing it or my first couple years doing it. And so now I feel like I have this 
you know, I've got three spots that I know there's a mature buck there. And based on some sign and sheds that I found on this private piece of ground, I'm pretty confident I'm on two more decent bucks. So I haven't seen them. Uh, this week I put out, uh, trail cameras on the spots and was over some corn. So I'm expecting, I'm going to let those cook for, I don't know, two months, three months, something like that. What is it? Almost May, May, June, July. Yeah. I'll probably go check them in July and pull the cards and then, uh, refresh them with new cards. And I'm hoping to get two shooter bucks, uh, out of the five or six places that I've, uh, set up. And so that would put me as, let's assume I get two out of the six places I set up. That would give me, uh, solid locations on one, two, three, four, five shooter bucks. Uh, two for sure on public land on Fort Stewart, unless they die of natural causes, they're not going to die from, from other hunters. Uh, they're just too far back there. One's on an Island that, I mean, almost no one goes to. And the other one is so far back that the only way to really get to it is, is, uh, by, by boat. It's not an Island, but you really need a boat to get there. Cause it would just take you day forever and days. It seems like to get there. Mm-hmm. So I feel confident that those two bucks will survive unless they die of, of natural causes. Like I said, so I feel pretty confident. I'm going to have a good year. I'm going to get some, uh, I'm going to get some points on the board this year. I can't wait. I want to see you in some hero picks. Seriously. Uh, I feel like I'm due, man. Uh, not to uh, not to make excuses, but I do move around a lot. So it's rare that I get to hunt. You know, in the past decade, I haven't hunted the same place for more than more than three seasons. Three yeah. seasons is the most I've ever gotten. So uh, it does make it a little bit more challenging when you're having to learn a new area every few years. And, and I mean, I went from georgia to oklahoma to colorado to new york and back to georgia but the second georgia time this has been in the swamps whereas the first one was more upland so it's really kind of totally different yeah Uh, no i I understand that that's got to be tough moving around like that because it it takes a while to learn a new area and i was actually talking about like just generally scouting with my dad the other day and you know he was kind of telling me his, his history of scouting and how like back when when he was younger like he didn't scout like like we are postseason now he used to go out and he used to go out and actually like basically he would bow hunt but he'd be scouting for gun season because that was really what his passion was back then and um then he goes to me he's like i don't need the scout he's like i've been scouting this place for 30 years so he has a good point which i got me thinking i'm like it's it is very nice to live only an hour from where i grew up and i have so many spots that I can fall back on and be like, listen, like things aren't working out in my new spots that I scouted at this year. I'm just going to go back home where I grew up and, and uh, climb up in one of these trees that I've hunted. I've been hunting for uh, almost 30 years now too. And, you know, know there's a good, good chance I'm going to see a deer. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, and when I go hunt in Florida where I grew up, it's kind of the same situation. I mean, my, my family kind of has those tried and true honey holes that they don't have to do too much work in, but okay. So this is my third season. The first two seasons I probably hunted, uh, I'm going to say probably 40 different spots. I mean, all together in two seasons. And I'm going to say a handful, five or six of them are places that I would go back to a second or third time. So, 
uh, it just takes a while to build up that inventory of hunting spots. Yeah, and I mean, you can have a spot that you find scouting and you think it's an awesome spot, and then you hunt it and you don't see anything, and it it kind of puts a doubter on the spot. But you really, sometimes, like if you're going to hunt a spot once or only twice a year, sometimes you really got to give that spot a few years of of chances before you can de- determine if it's a a spot to to keep or give up on. That's a good point. I uh, you remember the island that you and I hunted on uh, during Saddle Palooza? Mm-hmm. So I hunted that island once before. I think I told you the story, but I hunted that island once last season. But I came in via the river, so I came in the opposite way from which you know the way we went in. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do that again this season. I didn't see a single deer that sit last year. I just saw a bunch of pigs and turkeys. But I know there's deer. I mean, now that you and I saw all those deer during yeah. our pig hunt, I what know there's like deer. Twelve. Yeah, we saw a pile of them, and I know they're using that area. And I saw a bunch of sign when I was there. I just never went back. That's that's also the place I almost killed myself in the kayak. I don't know if I told you that story or not, but man, I almost died coming out there that night. Oh yeah, that's right. You were saying that the the currents were really bad, right? Yeah, they were ripping, and I got pushed into a blowdown. And a uh, I luckily my kayak is so heavy duty; it's a Hobie Pro Angler, so it's it's super super buoyant and doesn't tip easily. Or if I'd have been in in a you know a little canoe or a small kayak, I'd have been under, and whew, it could have been bad. The river was really ripping, so uh, I'm a little nervous to go back there. I'll just have to make sure to to watch the tides when I go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good reminder to anyone using a boat is just always be careful out there. Yeah, well, why don't we talk about Taylor? Uh, we uh, we had the chance to talk to Taylor last week who hunts up there in D.C. area and does a lot of urban hunting. Uh, what did you think about that? Uh, that was a really cool conversation to have with him. He, um, I, I do what I would call like a lot of suburban hunting, hunting in like some of the county parks in the different counties around me. Um, and, you know, I'm hunting not too far from some people's backyards and with a lot of, uh, you know, people out running and jogging and bike riding down the trails. And, you know, you can see them as you're, do- as you're hunting or you see them when you're walking in on everything. But, man, he took he takes urban hunting to a whole nother level. Yeah, you're right. It's he, he goes through it, man. That dude is is a he is dedicated i really uh i really enjoyed talking to him so i guess we should stop hinting around and go ahead and get to the conversation with the urban sportsman and talk a little bit about urban whitetails taylor how is dc treating you man Pretty good, uh, you know. Nothing like traffic and uh, two and a half million of my closest buddies uh, to keep me company. Yeah, well, we're pumped to have you on the podcast. The uh, urban bow hunting is something that I've done quite a bit. I know a lot of folks on saddlehunter.com have done quite a bit, but you are kind of, you know, you're up there with one of the one of the most experienced urban uh, bow hunters there is. Now, I gave john eberhardt the nickname the godfather of saddle hunting i don't know man you might deserve to be the the godfather of urban bow hunting <laughs> well i appreciate that hey i wouldn't be doing it if it weren't for john uh, i actually got into saddle hunting uh kind of through john uh, and i don't know him personally but um i read his books a bunch and uh 
tried saddles and fell in love with them. So, um, yeah, I, I can't imagine hunting in the suburbs without one. That's for sure. Definitely a huge, a huge advantage when you have to move around to all your different spots, right? Yeah. I mean, um, and we can definitely, you know, dive as deep into that as you guys want, but, um, yeah, kind of at a high level overview. I mean, the urban hunting is, um, it's definitely an interesting niche. It's not for everyone. Uh, some people are really uncomfortable doing it. It's funny for me, I've been doing it for so long now that when I go out and hunt like a regular farm, it feels weird that there aren't houses around. So, uh, I feel almost like a fish out of water when I start scouting uh, regular properties all over again. So it's kind of far or funny how far you can come uh, when you're getting, you know, getting to do something you love like that. Yep, I totally understand that. Hey, before we jump too deep into the the urban hunting scene and into how saddles have kind of helped you become a better hunter, give us kind of the quick elevator pitch for for Taylor Chamberlain. Who are you? What do you do for a living? Are you married? Kids? You know, give us give us the elevator pitch for who you are. Yeah, uh, I live right outside of Washington D.C. I um, am fortunate that I get to hunt uh, as much as I want. Our season runs year round here in Northern Virginia because of uh, the the deer problem that we have. Um, I'm a real estate developer by trade. I am married uh, to the most amazing understanding woman who lets me hunt over 200 days a year uh, and and process deer under our deck. And uh, I'm very lucky to have her around. And I'm a soon-to-be father. I got a little baby Chamberlain on the way. My wife is about eight months pregnant right now. So um, Congra- congratulations. I'm, thanks. Yeah, I, I know it's going to change a lot, although I'm fortunate that uh, I can hunt right out in my backyard. So hopefully, um, hopefully I'm still able to get around 200 hunts a year in. But Nope, um, not but, a chance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good luck. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not setting any expectations for that next year. <laughs> we'll just see how it goes. I'm right in the middle. I have a two and a half year old, and I was hunting 75, 80 days a year, and then we had a kid, and I'm happy with whatever days I get out there now at this point. <laughs> Don't <laughs> scare me, man. <laughs> Sorry, man. But, You're about but you know go. what? I mean, it. it, it it, it is what it is because like when you see that little kid, when you take them home and then you're like, this is my kid and you look at them and you're not going to love something so much in your entire life. It'll, it'll all be worth it. And then oh, you're going to yeah. start thinking, Oh, okay. Well now I got to start getting ready for when they want to come in the woods with me. Absolutely. And, and I mean, all kidding aside, I love hunting, but you know, everything in life's about a, an appropriate balance or, or finding the balance and, um, you know, I look forward to finding that balance between helping thinning out the deer herd and, uh, and still being a good dad. So, yeah, you're going to lose that godfather of urban bow hunting just as fast as you got it. <laughs> I'm happy to pass the torch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you mentioned that you're a real estate developer. Ooh, man, I can't think of, of a better job for someone that's hunting urban deer. That's got to play a huge role. Actually, you know, I think the best job uh, would be a landscaper. I have a buddy who does landscaping. And so uh, when he's talking to clients or, or talking to people and they're like, yeah, these shrubs, they just won't grow back because these darn deer. He goes, well, I can take care of that for you. So he ends up getting a lot of hunting permission uh, through yeah. that. But real estate developer is probably a close second. 
Yeah, Huck, sure. uh, you know, Huck on the forum, he is a UPS delivery guy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he drives trucks anymore, but he used to. And he got a ton of hunting permission just by, you know, dropping off packages and, and being friendly with, with people in that way. So it definitely matters. It's amazing how far a smile can go and, um, and just being open and honest. What's really kind of weird about urban hunting is – uh, the dynamics almost 180 degrees different. I mean, we have such a deer problem here in Northern Virginia that people will actually seek hunters out to come hunt on their property. So instead of you knocking on doors and, and getting used to hearing the word no, uh, pretty often, you know, my phone will ring with a random phone number and it's a friend of a friend of somebody's property that I hunt on that that referred me and they're begging me to come out and and hunt deer on their property. So um, that's something that definitely takes a little getting used to for sure. I can imagine. Uh, how did you get into urban hunting? I mean, did you grow up with your with your family, your dads, uncles, granddads, you know, whatever? Were you guys all hurt urban hunters or is this something that just kind of happened? It is something that happened uh, out of necessity. You know, it's kind of funny how you uh, can always find a way to do what you love to do. Um I am actually the only person in my family that hunts. My dad, I, I, I have triplet brothers, so I'm one of four boys. Um, and my dad and brothers and I, you know, my dad loves to bird hunt. My brothers love to bird hunt. Uh, so we shoot a lot of dove and a lot of upland birds, uh, but nobody deer hunts other than me. And so I had never been exposed to it uh, until I went to college. And uh, I went to college on the Virginia, West Virginia border and uh, actually had a golf scholarship to college and just kind of, you know, with a couple guys on the golf team, they were big hunters and I kept hearing about it. And I said, you know, I really want to try this out and um, went through all the hunter safety classes to get my license, which are required in Virginia, and then went out and hunted public land with a rifle uh, with about, you know, the, everybody on the Orange Army. And I was a gun hunter. Uh, at first, and then uh, really fell in love with bow hunting. And then when I graduated college, uh, moved back home to, to Northern Virginia. And um, I just tried to figure out a way to, to hunt deer. And um, it just so happened that, you know, I, I realized that there was a huge problem with the deer population here. Uh, where we are in Northern Virginia, the um, – you know, the, the carrying capacity for a white-tailed deer are in that 11 to 15 per square mile range, uh, depending on who you ask in, in the um, in the Department of Game and Inland Fisheries. And they are, have so many white-tailed deer here, they can't even get an accurate herd density number uh, because when they try to do the survey, they're counting deer too many times. So... They think the number is anywhere between 150, you know, 100 to 150 deer per square mile. Uh, but I've heard some numbers from some of the guys up to 350 and 400 deer per square mile in certain pockets. So um, that's insane. It, that is <laughs> way many. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if you go in the woods here, it, it's to the point where we really have an issue where, you know, if you go into the park and you get down to about four feet off the ground or three and a half feet off the ground, I mean, you can see as far as the topography will let you because the browse line is just so high. The deer have decimated 
everything. And uh, if you talk to all the urban foresters and all the people that are really into um, the trees and the health of the forest, you know, they're really worried about what the deer have done because uh, the the age of our forests are so high that when a big oak tree falls over, there aren't any young saplings to replace it. So, um, you know, kind of at a high level, what what's happened is as urban sprawl has moved out of D.C. and into uh, the suburbs, or we've we've created suburbs where there were once woods. The uh, the browse that was available for the deer has gone from just oaks and and all your normal browse to being replaced with, you know. Uh, fertilized grass and, you know, shrubs and stuff that they can eat that because of the fertilizer and, and the fact that we've planted it have a higher nutritional value and it can support more, more deer. And so, well, just and it just goes everything. to show you how resilient these deer are. I mean, they, they can survive anywhere and, and not only survive, obviously they're thriving. So these deer are just incredible creatures and they've, they've learned to adapt to their environment for sure. Absolutely. And they have, have definitely adapted and some, and, um, you know, I, I'd have to look at the stats. I haven't looked at anything in the last five years, um, since the last study came out, but Northern Virginia, if it's not the top area for vehicle deer collisions, it's one of the top ones. And, um, you know, the, the, um, all the different agencies and insurance companies are part of the ones that are pushing for the longer deer seasons because of the fact that, I mean, it's dangerous to drive on the roads here. And, and also the, uh, the, the Lyme disease and all the other diseases that are being transmitted uh, by the ticks and, and various things. Um, it's becoming a problem. So definitely. Need, yeah. So we need guys. And, and on top of all that, you know, you, there are fewer and fewer hunters out there. I mean, I was never exposed to it. A lot of people that I talk to about it, they have no clue um, what hunting is like. And, and you have to explain it to them and, and talk it through. So it's really kind of the perfect storm to create a giant overpopulation of deer. Do you, uh, do you have to jump through a bunch of hoops? Are there a bunch of special requirements, proficiency tests, licenses that the state of Virginia or D.C. require you to get above and beyond your your just your state hunting license or is that pretty much all it takes? Do you just have to get permission from landowners? Uh, you know, how, how does that work? So your state hunting license allows you to hunt, uh, anywhere in the Commonwealth of Virginia. The, the different, uh, counties have different regulations for, uh, discharge, discharging of a weapon and how they define a weapon. Um, Arlington County, for example, you can't discharge a bow within a hundred yards of any dwelling, including the dwelling of that, um, of that property. So that pretty much makes almost every property in Arlington County unhuntable. Um, Fairfax County is, is different. So you have to know the different, uh, rules and regulations of all the different municipalities, but you don't need any special license to, to go out and hunt, um, on the private land in Northern Virginia. Now we have a separate a separate program for the county parks where um, all the qualified hunters can pass a proficiency test. And as long as they have their license, they take some orientation courses. They're selected out of uh, all of the applicants uh, based on their hunting knowledge and, and 
their track record in the past um, and a couple other items, they're able to go in and hunt the parks as well. And the, the parks are the areas that have the huge number of overpopulation uh, of deer. And, and because of the fact that, you know, they're kind of pushed into all that forest land as opposed to all of the, you know, suburban sprawl. Yeah. I have to tell you, Taylor, I'm, I'm pretty jealous uh, listening to you because I'm i I'm in New Jersey, if you didn't know. And actually it sounds like a fairly similar situation. You guys probably sound a little bit worse off, but, um, we have a good amount of suburban hunting around here, but it is mostly limited to uh, the county park programs. That's actually the suburban areas. I like my neighborhood. We have so many deer around, but just in a lot of the towns, you're not allowed to to discharge a bow or hunt, and it's really holding back hunters from helping to thin out these populations. Our our state keeps passing these laws, like they dropped the bow hunting safety zone to 150 feet. They've allowed crossbows. They allow bow hunting on Sundays. They're doing all this stuff tr- to try to allow hunters to help thin out the deer herds. But the town laws that don't allow you to get into these places like like you're going into are really keeping us back from, from doing what you're doing down there. Yeah, we were really fortunate here in Virginia that um, – you know, we, we didn't have a lot of regulations that prohibited urban hunting, thankfully, uh, because we need it so badly. Um, although recently, we we just within the last couple of years became able to hunt on Sundays, which was a big deal because, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're a normal guy like all of us are and you're working Monday through Friday, you know, to only be able to hunt one day on the weekend, it, it's tough to do and um, definitely makes it hard to reduce the deer which is what we need to do up here uh, where we are. So uh, luckily, you know, unlike, unlike you over there in New Jersey, um, you know, we don't have that as an issue here, uh, thankfully. So. See, that, that brought up uh, something that I wanted to, to talk about. So you talked about kind of these parks, these recreation areas, probably, you know, government-owned land for the most part. And, and that's certainly an option, it sounds like, for some for some guys, even though it's tightly regulated, but I was reading on your website, uh, what is it? The urban sportsman.com, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I was reading on your website and you, you mentioned in there that you had over a thousand trees prepped. Now, first of all, good God, that's incredible. Uh, second of all, how do you go about getting permission to all these places? Is a lot of it through, um, your real estate de- development contacts is a lot of it through organized hunting groups. Are you just knocking on doors? Is it friends and family? Is it just referrals from this or that? H- how do you go about finding these places to hunt? You know, it, it's all the above. Um, I'm a pretty personable guy. I, uh, I enjoy talking to people and, uh, I definitely like talking about deer. I joke around with my wife that, uh, that you just pull the string and let me go. Cause, cause I'll just keep going. And, um, so, I mean, I meet a lot of people, uh, through various clients. Um, I'm a member of various private organizations that help reduce the deer herd. Um, and, and some people uh, will seek out those organizations. So, um, so, so talk about that for a minute. Talk, talk, explain these, these organizations. What do you mean by that? There, there are a couple different uh, groups of private, um, you know, 501c3 volunteer-based groups that will come out and hunt properties um, for free. Um, you know, all the homeowners have to do are contact those people. Um, 
or, or contact that organization. So, so I've fair- heard about these kind of organizations before. So is this something these in, in the way that it kind of sounded like to me and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way it kind of sounded like to me was kind of like a, like an urban hunting club where you have an organization, you know, call it, call it urban hunting club, LLC. And, and the homeowners contact urban hunting club, LLC and say, Hey, I'm having trouble with the, uh, the deer eating all my azaleas. And then urban hunting club, LLC has 500 members, you know, or something like that, 50 members. And then that, that property is then made available to those 50 members. Is that the kind of setup you're talking about? Yeah, it's very similar to that. Um, So uh, all the different groups that I'm in, they're very uh, adamant to not call themselves a club, though, (laughs) which is kind of funny uh, because that's how a lot of people think about it is it's a hunt club. Um, We think about it as we're volunteers that are volunteering to reduce the deer herd. And uh, the reason that that mindset is important is we have very, very – big swings in temperature and we get to hunt year round. So uh, when you think about it as a club, you kind of go out when, when you can. And if you think about it as a volunteer, um, you kind of feel like more obligated to go out and and perform the tasks that you volunteered to do. So it's miserable hunting in August when it's a hundred degrees and it's a hundred percent humidity and you cannot be outside without sweating. Um, But it's, it's something that's necessary because we have volunteered to do it and we're trying to help Mrs. Smith and her azaleas and, you know, reduce the herd. Um, so a lot of the organizations that, that I'm a part of, um, are proud that they're volunteers and and groups and not clubs, but yeah. So the way it works is, um, you know, Mrs. Smith will call, uh, she will sign her property up to be hunted. Uh, they have a, you know, different leaders or team leaders that are responsible for different areas. And then they would assign hunters to those properties, for example, um, on, on some of them. Others just have kind of like here, all the properties go at it. Um, and actually a lot of the properties that I hunt are all through word of mouth and, uh, people that I play golf with that, you know, have a problem with the deer and, um, you know, you offer to help them, you go over, you hunt there a couple times. They love it. They love the way deer meat tastes. Some of them have never been exposed to venison before. And, uh, then they refer you to their buddies and then, you know, so on and so on. So I've actually gotten to the point where I'm saturated with properties. I have more properties than I'm able to hunt. Um, you know, right now before baby Chamberlain comes, I have, uh, you know, anywhere between 20 to 30 properties that I'm rotating through hunting. Um, and those are just the viable ones. They're probably another 15 or 20 that I would consider a seasonal property where uh, maybe it's one where it's just a big oak flat and the oaks aren't dropping this year. So I'll let them know, let the homeowners know to let me know if they're seeing deer and I'll come around if they do. But otherwise, I'm not going to be able to spend a lot of time there this year because of the fact that the deer aren't there. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Right. Um, so. Are are you pretty much a hundred percent this style of hunting, or are you still going out to to big woods and public land pieces and private farms? And I, you kind of mentioned that at the beginning of the conversation, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, 
I am 100% uh, well I'm 99.9% uh, all urban hunting um, I have a buddy of mine who uh, has a, a lease in Kentucky that I'll go down to uh, once in a while but for the most part um, yeah know, so if something cool pops up, you're going to go hunt it. But for, but if you're hunting, you know, just regular tailors going hunting today, you're, you're going to one of these urban parcels. Absolutely. I, I, I love it. I enjoy it more than, than big woods hunting. Uh, it's just, there, there's never a dull moment. I mean, I could keep you guys here for hours telling stories of weird and funny things that I've seen happen uh, from a tree in the, in the suburbs and you just don't see it. I mean, uh, just knowing that when the school bus comes, that the deer wait for the school bus to pick the kids up and leave before it comes out to cross the street is something that is, <laughs> people don't believe it until they see it. It know? is so funny that you brought up the school bus. When I was in college, uh, I did a little bit of urban hunting myself and my, the guy that actually took me on my very first urban hunt he had a stand set up and he took me in before daylight and put me up in the stand and as the sun starts coming up and i can start to see my surroundings i'm going holy crap that's a house right there and you know i'm like 70 yards from a house and and then you know sun gets a little bit a little bit lighter and there's a street i'm like oh man i'm on a cul-de-sac and then you know the doors start opening and kids start coming out and here comes a school bus they come and they pick up the kids and the kids point at me they see me in the tree and they kind of point and they're like what's that guy doing and then as soon as the school bus leaves the deer start pouring out everywhere it was unbelievable i think i ended up shooting two does that morning yep they uh the, the deer know our schedules and they know that for the most part we're not danger to them because nobody in the suburbs generally hunts them. So, I mean, they know what, what you're doing. And I mean, I've had guys come out and talk on their, on their cell phones on their deck and had the deer 15 yards away and just not, not have a care in the world. Um, but they, they know when they see you in the tree to get out of there, right? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and actually that's where the saddle really comes into play a lot because you know, I like to bounce around. So if I'm hunting a quarter acre backyard, but there are five trees there that I can climb in with my saddle, I'll hunt each one of those trees each time I'm there just, just to try and keep the deer guessing. Um, no way you could do that with any other type of, of, of product to hunt from. No, it would be, it would be really difficult. Well, I mean, you could do it. You could do it with a climbing tree stand. It's just, you know, is, does the tree have limbs? Is it set up for a perfect climb with a climber? You know, it, well, you, are yeah, you could do, you, you could do it with like, um, sticks and a hang on, but it's just, the saddle is just more adaptable to any tree. Yeah. It's just sets up so much better, so much easier, faster, quieter than, than that stuff. Yeah. Well, and a lot of the stuff I'm hunting, I mean, it's like a six inch diameter tree. Um, or sometimes, you know, I'm hunting the, the big John Eberhardt tree. That's, you know, three feet around. That's just got screw in pegs all the way up to the top to an eye bolt. Um, so, I mean, I, I can't be picky about my tree selection because I'm hunting something that's only a quarter acre. I mean, there might be one tree you could get in on some of these properties. Um, and hunting from the ground is not an option because I can't risk having my arrow, leave the property that I'm on. So, you know, I can't be shooting flat. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, that's where kind of the saddle really comes into play among other things, but, um, yeah, 
very helpful. So how are you, how are you climbing all these trees? So I uh, I have three different ways that I'm climbing the trees. I have trees that I have prepped where I have um, hang on sticks that I've left and I'll get up with, with screwing at the top for a platform. Uh, I probably have about 50 trees uh, like that. Then I have my lone wolf sticks that I use uh, with a platform, which I use for you know 75% of my hunts. Uh, and then I have few trees where I have detachable screw in uh, Cranford steps that just out of necessity, I've had to use those. Either the tree's too big or it's a high profile location where maybe there are a bunch of high school kids that come through a creek bottom to do various high school kids stuff. Um, and I don't want them climbing my sticks or messing with them. So, uh, you know, I, I try to figure out the most discreet way possible to allow me to hunt that location the easiest way possible. And then I use whatever tools available, but, um, you know, it's always a saddle. It's just a matter of how I'm climbing the tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. It, did, did now before you got into the saddle hunting, uh, cause I, I mean, it's saddle hunting is, is kind of a new thing for, for most people, not everyone. I mean, I know Scott's been hunting out of a saddle for, probably close to a decade. I've been hunting out of a saddle for six years. What about you, Taylor? How long? Uh, so this is year 10 for me. Uh, oh, so I, you got a lot of experience then. Yeah. I started in 2008 and, um, surprisingly I've, I've probably got more time in a saddle than I do a regular tree stand. Um, well, that's where just, I was going with that. So, so before you were a saddle hunter, you were a tree stand hunter. Um, and you were I, hunting the same properties though, right? Still hunting urban. Uh, yeah, so I was hunting a, um, a piece of ground that my family owns that was close to where I went to college. And I used a climbing tree stand, but I, I just started working at the time. And it was the only piece of ground that, that I had permission to hunt. And so I would wake up early on Saturday morning. I would go out there with my climber and I'd climb a tree and I would sit all day long, regardless of the time of year or what. That was the only day I could hunt, and I was going to hunt all of it. Um, and so I just started sitting in my climber, sitting in my climber, and um, I got a little tired of lugging the climber into the woods. And I was looking for various options, and at the same time I was doing that, I was thinking, you know, how can I get access to more properties? Um, there was another, there was a military base that was kind of close to the house I was living in uh, with one of my buddies. And so we would go down there and hunt the military base as well. And, um, you know, we just got tired of making that 45 minute drive and, and kind of put two and two together and started urban hunting. And um, right about the time that I started doing the urban hunting, I had a friend of mine that introduced me to the trophy line tree saddle. And I, I, Bought one on eBay that night after he showed it to me, and never looked back. Uh, it was probably the best thing I've ever, I've ever done. As a fresh out of college kid, I think I paid 150 bucks for that saddle, and that was a lot of money to bite off at the time. And um, I, I couldn't be happier. I spent it because it it changed the way I hunted forever. Yep, it's amazing. The saddle really is a such an incredible tool, and. 
uh, it's so neat that there's there seems to be a lot of momentum kind of around the saddle hunting community right now that it's kind of growing and stuff's constantly changing and and on the forum at saddlehunter.com people are constantly pushing the envelope and figuring out new ways to climb and and saddles way to be more comfortable and platforms it's just kind of we're at a really cool time in 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 the saddle hunting history if you want to call it that I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's a really fun time to be a saddle hunter. You're seeing more and more people get into it. Um, and, and everybody that that I show the saddle to or that uh, has seen me in the saddle, all of them want to try it. They can't wait to get in one because they can tell how versatile of a tool it is and how amazing of a tool it is. And I mean, uh, I'm sure I'd still kill a lot of deer a year if I was hunting from a regular tree stand, but there's no way that I, it would be the same number because there are tons of animals that I harvest every year that's because of the versatility of the saddle that allows me to do it. I was hunting with a buddy of mine um, earlier this year and had a couple does feeding in and came to full draw. And the, the doe that I was going to shoot stopped with her vitals directly behind this little, you know, eight inch or 10 inch diameter tree. And I sat there at full draw for 15 or 20 seconds while she could tell something was wrong. And I put my feet up against the tree at directly hip level, horizontal with the ground and was able to push out off the tree and harvest that deer. And my buddy who was about 30 yards away was watching and just thought that was the coolest thing he had ever seen. You know, I mean, yeah. he, he just kept telling me I was a tree ninja the entire morning while we recovered her. <laughs> he's like, I got to get one of those. That was the coolest thing ever. And I said, man, that's just, that's part of why you hunt with one, you know? I mean, that's right. You know, yeah. It, I mean, I, I've, I've shot it on that note. I've shot a deer. Like I'm literally standing on, on like my tippy toes on one screw in step with my other foot dangling in the air just to get into position to shoot a buck. And you just, there's no other way you could have, you could do it. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's, there's no doubt that it's the most versatile hunting system on the planet. I mean, you just can't argue with that. You, you kind of, you, you made a good point a minute ago, Taylor. Could you shoot a lot of deer from a, from a climbing stand or from a lock on stand or, or even from a ladder stand? Sure. Absolutely. But could you manage the properties the way that you do, um, and have all of these trees prepped and ready to go so you can play the wind and keep the deer guessing? And I mean, sure you could, you just have to invest in hundreds of stands i mean it's just impractical to be carrying those things in and out and setting them up every time uh when you're when you're talking with the kinds of numbers of properties that you have yeah and i mean another thing that's really versatile for this for the saddle that i doubt you guys have ever had to experience i mean when i'm hunting in the parks for example or hunting a um an hoa piece of ground that have people using the property recreationally some of them are not in favor of hunting. Some of them are adequately opposed to hunting. And so not only am I able to walk around a tree and hide from a deer, I can also walk around a tree and not be noticed by the, the yep. two people walking through the park that are going to sit there and scream at me because they don't agree with hunting. Um, and that is worth every penny of a saddle because it's hard to, to get somebody's opinion to change, especially when they're screaming at you in a tree. Yeah, that's actually one of the things I had written down here in my show notes. What's uh, talk to me about getting harassed by these anti hunters? What what what's the scenario? Give me the give me the best case where you were afraid for your life, where Mrs. Smith you thought she was going to destroy you. 
Yeah, I mean, you get a lot of nastiness. Um, uh, again, I could go on with, with tons of stories. We had a um, an anti-hunter group one year uh, that, that there was notice that was sent out about a a group hunt that was taking place on some um, some land that was owned by uh, Fairfax County that I live in. And all these anti-hunters uh, got together and they came out at sunup with pots and pans and they walked through the woods trying to bang pots and pans to, uh, to scare all the deer away so we wouldn't be successful in our harvest. I don't think they understood hunting though because they basically created the greatest deer drive known to man and pushed all these deer in front of 20 hunters. And, and I mean, there were multiple, multiple harvests that morning that probably wouldn't have happened uh, from the anti hunters. So that was it working in our favor um, for sure. But I mean, for the most part, you get a lot of people that are very passionate about the deer. They don't understand uh, that, that we care more about the deer than anybody else does. And I, anybody who's screaming at me about deer, I tell them, look, I love the deer too. I'm out here because I love the deer. Yeah, they're all going to starve to death if we don't do something to get their numbers in check. I've seen deer, uh, you know, so even though we have a year-round deer season, we have a limited antlered deer season. So we can only harvest three antlered deer a year. Um, I had a deer, uh, an antlered buck that was out of season walk up to the tree that I was sitting in and eat the bark off the tree because it was so hungry. I, I, I assume um, it was eating bark off the tree because there was nothing else around to eat. And you just kind of like, I mean, how hungry does an animal have to be to eat bark off a tree where it has zero nutritional value for it? Um, mm. Yeah. And that, that's tough to see. I mean, you're watching them starve. Um, back to your question about anti hunters. I've had a couple people, in traffic, roll their windows down um, because I'll be, you know, leaving a property and, and um, you know, they, they'll know that I've been hunting and they'll just scream at me, you know, yeah, cursing. So, and so Let's talk about that for a second. I've, I've heard this exact topic brought up before in other, other podcasts or other articles. And, and one of the way that uh, we won't call it a club, but we'll call it the the hunt organization LLC. Uh, <laughs> they they required their users, their members, to uh, not wear camo to to the uh, on the street. So they get out of their their vehicle, whatever, keep their bow cased, transport their bow and their camo and their pack or whatever to a place outside of the street, outside of the public view. Then get dressed in camo as to you know not disturb the the peace or or you know be in the faces of the antis is that something that you have to do or is that a little overkill for your area no that's 100 percent what we do uh or, or what i do i mean everybody's different um but discretion is key I, I try to not have anyone know that i'm there not because of any reason uh like i'm not supposed to be there i clearly have permission and am allowed to be doing what i'm doing but you know People are not, for the most part, they haven't been exposed to hunting. They don't know what to expect. And just being discreet is the absolute best way to go about it. Out of sight, out of mind, get in, do your job, and and you know leave. So I always change into camo. Um, I don't drive into a neighborhood with my camouflage on. I'm always changing once I get to a property. Um, I have 
you know, one of those deer sleds and a tonneau cover on my truck bed. So, uh, when you do harvest an animal, you put them in the sled, you get them up in the back of the truck as fast as possible, close the tailgate. Um, you know, a lot of the times you're not field dressing an animal at the property because you don't want Fido running out back when he gets, when, you know, when the parents get home and digging into a gut pile. Um, so you really have to think through a lot of things that you might not uh, think about when you're just hunting in big woods um, to, to try and be as discreet as possible. And, and you know, I, I don't put hunting stickers on my truck um, for the most part. I, I don't want to stand out as a hunter, not because I'm not proud to be a hunter, but I just try to avoid the confrontation um, that that would come around. You know, I had a guy tell me one time, uh, who called called me and had me come out and hunt his property. And it was a guy who was a referral. And uh, he goes, man, you're not at all what I expected. And I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, I just expected some like army fatigue wearing redneck coming out here trying to shoot everything that moved. And he expected you know, swamp sniper. That's what he expected. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, it, that that's just what people – when you say I'm calling a hunter to come help with the deer herd, that's what they think. Uh, you know, when they find out that I live in the neighborhood and that, you know, I'm a normal guy with a nine to five and, you know, I'm happy to volunteer to help reduce a deer. It's really kind of funny to kind of see their opinion change. Um, yeah, that kind of, that kind of segues into another topic that I wanted to, that I kind of wanted to talk with you about. And, uh, kind of a little gear change, but not really. Are you familiar with the guys in Atlanta that do the the program called Seek One? Have you seen yeah. any of their stuff? Okay, I have. So for for those of you that haven't, there's a there's a group of urban hunters in in the suburbs of Atlanta that have formed this organization called Seek One, and they put some videos out on YouTube. And Mossy Oak came and did some work with them and videoed some of their stuff, and they did some really good stuff. And I was I was pretty impressed with the quality of their, the, the, the uh, material they were putting out and they were getting on some big bucks. And, and then all of a sudden I saw an episode and they literally uh, posted up in someone's driveway. I don't know if you saw this episode or not, Taylor, but is this, is this the basketball hoop buck? They literally posted up in someone's driveway and shot a big buck in the driveway underneath a basketball goal. Now I am not knocking those guys as far as, you know, saying that's unethical or saying that they were wrong. They shouldn't have done it. I'm not making a moral judgment on them at all, but for me personally, that's not something that I'd be interested in doing. So let's let's talk about maybe kind of the ethics of, of hunting and, and quote unquote backyards and, you know, is it really hunting? Are these deer, are they pets? Are they captive? Is it a piece of cake? I mean, talk to me, talk to me about some of that stuff. Well, um, so on, firstly on the, on the seek one guys, they do a great job. I love the product they put out. The videos are awesome. Um, my only kind of issue with, with what they're doing is, I mean, as far as I know for urban hunting and I know, pretty well that Atlanta is similar to what we have here in DC where the urban population of whitetails is drastically out of whack. Um, it's our mission to get it back under control. So 
I would love to spend 200 days a year buck hunting. I would love to not have to drag and, and gut, you know, a hundred deer a year. Um, but I feel like it's my duty in order to get the deer back in the right population numbers to, to harvest the deer. You know, I, that's kind of what I feel like it's my job to do. So I've, I kind of am not a huge fan of buck hunting the suburbs and just letting all these deer walk that you could be harvesting because it's our job to harvest them. So, I mean, I really feel like it's our job to, to help thin the deer out. And anytime that I have an ethical shot on a whitetail that I can take that will help reduce deer numbers, I'm going to take it. Uh, so as much as I'd love to sit there and buck hunt year round, um, and that's what those guys are doing. And, and they're killing some giant bucks. And I mean, absolute monsters. Uh, at ATA show this year, they actually had a couple of um, of their bucks there. And I mean, wow, um, truly studs. But, you know, I, I don't think that's really appropriate as far as my opinion, not to make a judgment call or anything on somebody else. And, you know, if it makes them happy, great. But, um, you know, I feel like we have to do our part to, to reduce the deer. Yeah, and I, so. I want to be super clear about that as well. I I mean, I said it a minute ago, but I'm not making a moral judgment on anyone. You know, if it's legal and and you're happy to do it, I, I hey, we need more hunters. So I'm the last one to knock any sort of legal ethical hunting. But absolutely, somewhere it, with every hunter, there's a line, and and to me, the basketball goal. And the uh, driveway was probably a, a line that I wouldn't have crossed personally, and and it was just interesting. I've 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 seen a lot of backlash from that, and and uh, it, it was just really interesting to see that scenario and how it was handled. But I didn't know if you had ever encountered a similar situation or not. Yeah, well, and and to kind of uh, answer your question before, is urban hunting easy? No, it's really not. I mean, deer are smart, and and as we were talking about before, they're really easily able to adapt to whatever is thrown at them. And the second that you come into a backyard as a predator and start harvesting deer, they know something's going on and they are very wise. And, and once you've are, once you're hunting deer uh, that have been hunted for numbers of years, I mean, it is very difficult to get in tight on them and, and harvest them, um, especially close enough to where, you know, you can make that quick, clean, ethical kill shot because, you know, I'm not able to take a shot that has a 1% margin of error. I, I cannot risk having a deer run off the property that I have permission to hunt on and end up two or three properties over because that's now three doors that I have to knock on to get permission to come across their property. And now that's three people that could possibly be anti-hunters or that are now going to be aware to the fact that I'm operating in the area and, you know, might try to get together and, and get me shut down or something and, and just could cause a headache uh, that I don't need. So, you know, it, it's very important to have that perfect 12 ring pinwheel shot of 40 yards and pile up because, uh, otherwise it, it's a, a disaster waiting to happen. So it, it's not easy at all. Um, and a lot of people definitely are thinking that you're just going to the zoo and shooting animals at the petting zoo. Uh, 
It's certainly not the case. Well, how many times do you zero? I mean, how many times do you go out and you see nothing? A lot. Um, I'm actually, I've kind of slowed down. This, this is what I was, I think we were joking about this, uh, the other day, Greg, but I mean, you know, I, I've gotten to the point where I'm in my slow season, so I'm only hunting two to three times a week as opposed to rough life, you know? Yeah, no, I know. I'm not going to get much sympathy from you guys um, or anybody listening for that matter, but um, I have not harvested a deer now in trying to think probably about three weeks. So nine hunts, 10 hunts, um, maybe more. So it, it's very, I mean, a lot of the time you'll go out, you might not see any deer, uh, especially this time of year as the does are starting to get ready to drop their fawns. I think that as, as things green up in the woods, the does tend to be able to feed pretty much anywhere. And they'll just bed right on top of, of whatever food source they're eating. Uh, and so the woods are, are lush enough to feed on, but they're sparse enough that they can see you coming from a mile away and they'll just blow out of the area. So this is actually the hardest time of year, in my opinion, to hunt. Um, and yeah, there are a lot of times you go out and see nothing or, uh, you might see a couple deer, but they'll be far off and you won't be able to get a shot on them. Uh, so it, it's, it's pretty frequent that you see none, but sometimes you'll see 50 and shoot four. So, I mean, it's just sticking in the saddle and, and toughing it out and eventually it'll work out. Yeah. So so let's let's switch gears a little bit and help some help some saddle hunters out out there in the saddle hunting nation. So give give us some tips for getting properties. How do you go about you know finding somewhere to hunt urban and and what are some things that you found in your experience that that that, uh, that make landowners respond well to asking for permission? What things don't work? You know what are some of the do's and don'ts of of acquiring urban hunting spots? Yeah. Um, so what I do is I'll look at an aerial map and I'll try to find, think about it where the woods are connecting as highways. And so if you follow the woods and the creek bottoms, which are what those tend to be because they're undevelopable uh, parts of the land, you can follow those creek bottoms into large intersections of where they all come together. So like a giant hub if you were thinking about spokes on a wheel. So I'll key in on those hub areas, uh, especially if there's an area near a hub that kind of bottlenecks down. I'll identify those properties based on aerial uh, maps. I'll figure out who owns them. And I mean, fortunately for me at this point, I'll tend to know someone who might know that property or it might be a neighbor to a property that I'm hunting. But for this example, let's say I don't know anybody in there. So I identify the hub and I just figure out who owns it based on the tax records and I'll go over to their house. I'll ring the doorbell and and just say, hey, how you doing? Introduce myself, uh, explain to them what I'm doing, uh, explain to them that I live in the area, that I'm a resident, that I'm concerned about the deer and uh, just chat with them and, and kind of have a nice open discussion about the deer. I, I think the best thing that you can do is to be knowledgeable about the deer, about the numbers, and, and just be able to talk openly and honestly about 
you know, what you're trying to do. Um, one thing that we have here in Virginia that's just fantastic is called the Hunters for the Hungry program. And what that allows is you can take a deer to any butcher in Virginia uh, or participating butchers and donate the entire deer for no cost to you. And so what I'm able to do is donate all of my deer uh, to the Hunters for the Hungry program and have that meat get processed and then donated to local homeless shelters and food banks for people that are in need. So it's a great way to take a resource that's, you know, obviously abundant and use that to help people that need it uh, and allow us to to be able to get out and hunt them at the same time. And homeowners love that. Um, That's something that allows them to feel good about the harvesting of, of deer and know that it's going to good use. And uh, I also shared the venison with a lot of the homeowners and, you know, most of them have never tried it before and I'll come over and, you know, I'll cook up a bunch of jerky or something and bring it over and, and they love it. So um, just as long as you're open and and communicating with them and, and friendly and and honest, um, I, I find that, you know, they'll either tell you yes right there on the spot or they'll want to think about it for a while and, um, they'll give you a call some period of time later. Do you have like a business card you leave them or uh, like a resume or something? So I, I, um, I actually probably should get some business cards made with just my cell phone number on them. I, I hand them my actual work business card. Uh, and I've had a couple times now where I've had some people that, uh, you know, might've shown it. One example, I had a guy who I talked to, I gave him my card. Uh, he gave it to his wife. His wife was adamantly opposed to hunting and called me at my office and uh, yelled at my office manager on the phone until she put me on the phone and then yelled at me for a while about hunting. And, uh, and we were actually able to have a, uh, once she calmed down, have a very civil, open discussion about deer. And um, I went over to her house and we continued the conversation. And then she eventually ended up letting me hunt there. So um, it, it was that was unusual. Most people tend to not change their minds, but, um, you know, I, I, to answer your question, Scott, I should definitely leave a card with just my cell phone number on it because I uh, don't like getting calls at the office for non-work related items. Yeah. And on everything you've been talking about, like either having like a resume or a business card made up, it just makes you look more professional to, to the people that you're trying to, to, to maybe turn over to get you to let them hunt, let you hunt. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I do talk through, uh, with them, my experience with urban hunting and, um, you know, I'm a pretty accomplished archer. Um, I really like to tune bows and tinker with bows and, um, you know, help a lot of my buddies out with bows and, uh, I'm able to kind of explain that to them as well. And I think that helps put them at ease and also to let them know you're hunting from an elevated position, um, not leaving things in the tree, uh, for other people to climb and hurt themselves on, you know, they're not liable for any, um, you know, harm that I do and that I'm shooting at a downward angle. So there are no possibilities for ricochets. You know, there are a lot of, um, points that are hard to, to have any negative connotation with other than, you know, the actual harvesting of the animal. But when you start talking about the hunters for the hungry program, um, that's really the turning point where a lot of them are like, okay, go for it, you know? I like it, man. I like it. That's a lot of good tips. And 
You know, one of the best tips that I could tell anyone, because I've gotten quite a few urban hunting permission places as well, is go in your active duty uniform. You know, I'm active duty military, so show up in your in your army uniform with your daughter standing beside you, and it's really hard for people to say no then. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to say no. You can come on my property. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, to your point there. I mean, I always look professional. I'm always business casual. I'm not trying to show up in a in a fully pressed suit because it, then you look like you're selling something. But uh, you know, if you're in like nice khakis and a button down, basically what I wear to work, um, you just look presentable and explain what you're doing in a professional manner, and they realize that you're serious about it and you're not just um, some guy coming over trying to shoot anything that, that comes to the yard. Man, that is awesome. I have, uh, I've learned a lot and, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on here and tell us all these tips and tricks and explain how the whole situation works. It's very interesting. And I think we could keep going on forever, but, uh, we're going to have to wrap it up at some point, but Hey, tell us before we let you go, what's the weirdest thing you've seen hunting in, in people's backyards? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I can tell you. Oh, yeah. You can. We don't <laughs> have any advertisers. Some, some this be. is uh, this is yeah. NSFW. Okay. Well, I I, uh, I have a couple. So um, there's one property that I hunt uh, where uh, it's pretty close to the local high school. So um, I'm sitting in the woods one one evening. I think it was a Friday afternoon, and it's right about dusk, golden hour. And I see some movement. I actually heard something coming up over a hill. And uh, I look up, and it's a high school boy and, and girl. And uh, they kind of come over the hill, and they're, they're touchy-feely and kissing on each other. And they got down to about 20 yards away from me. And uh, I said, hey, hey. And they, they started looking around and uh, couldn't tell where it was. And I said, hey. And uh, they just freaked out and ran out of there in two completely different directions. Uh, and, and I don't think she ever found where he went because they ran two completely different ways. And, uh, you know, she was trying to put her clothes back on and all that good stuff. So that was definitely weird. Um, something similarly that was almost as funny was uh, middle of the rut last year um, down in the middle of the woods, you know, pretty far away from houses. Uh, I hiked into this spot like an hour before sunrise and I just couldn't be happier about what's going on and um, sat there all day. And at about two o'clock in the afternoon, I see some movement coming towards me. I pull my binoculars up and I see two tie dye t-shirts kind of dancing through the woods with their arms out. And there are these two hippies in their mid thirties, just tripping balls and uh, <laughs> they kind of just continued to dance up to pretty much right under my tree. And I said, hey, really loudly. And one guy took off sprinting and screaming, and the other hit the ground like mortar fire was coming in and started screaming and um, started rolling around on the ground thinking that the trees were talking to him and uh, eventually realized that it was me and not the trees and ran off after his buddy so yeah definitely they, some weird things they thought the trees the were talking to him at that point yeah they're eating some bad mushrooms for sure <laughs> but yeah didn't see any deer that day surprisingly after the merry pranksters ran through uh but oh well 
Although you just never know because the deer are used to that, right? Yeah, as long as they're not uh, eating the stuff that those guys are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, Taylor, man, we certainly appreciate you coming on, giving us an hour of your time. Uh, you could have been out shooting a whole bunch of deer, but instead you came on the podcast with us. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks for he, he could have been painting the nursery. I've I've uh, built the crib and uh, got everything ready. So painting the nursery is next on the list. I'm saving that for Saturday. We got uh, a little bit of rain coming through, so at least it won't ruin a well. <laughs> just tell Miss Chamberlain she can blame me if anything goes wrong. Yeah, I will. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're going to let you go, man. We certainly appreciate it again, and we will have you back on. And I am coming up your way next season. I definitely want to shoot some of these urban deer. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Really appreciate it. And anytime you want to come up, the more the merrier, man. We uh, we need to take them out and thin them out. So get on up here and come shoot some deer. All right, Taylor, thank you for coming on to share all that with us. That was very informative. I had a, a great time talking to you about that. How about you, Greg? Oh, yeah. Taylor is the man. I am a big fan of the urban sportsman. That dude is a killer. I wish I could spend that much time in the woods like he does, but at the same time, man, I think my job would fall apart and my marriage would fall apart. I just don't know how he does it. How do you spend 200 days in the woods and get away with all of that? And he's a golfer. Yeah. I mean, goodness, he is a better man than me. He's he's a lucky man, but like we said, he's having a kid, so life is going to change. Yep, it's all over for him. (laughs) But um, I did go on and watched uh, a few of his videos before we were speaking to him. And I don't know if you've watched them, but did you see the video? Uh, He's basically hanging in someone's front yard. And there's like a truck going up the driveway in the morning. And uh, it it gets light and he's he's in the front yard and like right next to the driveway. Oh, yeah. It's it's crazy, man. He's, uh, He's a machine. Yeah. But um, as he said, he, he's doing a service, uh, helping thin out the deer populations. Easy to like a guy that is so thoughtful about, you know, the deer. You can tell that he, he honestly cares about making sure that the deer are healthy and, and that the population is in control. He's not just out looking, you know, to kill Mr. Big. Uh, he, he actually cares about what he's doing, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that that was uh I don't know if surprising's the right word, but um actually it was really cool to hear him talk about that. And I mean we just spent an hour talking with Taylor and uh we barely even talked about Bucks because that really is not his mission. Yeah, I mean yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh definitely um definitely something to uh keep in mind when you're thinking about conservation as opposed to you know big buck hunting is is uh that we really need to take care of the does first yeah i try to do my part around here i mean i typically will shoot three does a season up here we have one of the places i hunt they want you to shoot uh two does before you can shoot a buck so i always try to make sure i get my two does i mean it gives me an opportunity to get a, uh, some chances at some good bugs too, but um, it's again part of thinning out the populations. So doing my part. Yep, that's good. Uh, I need to shoot a few more does this year. Uh, I, I actually have a lot of people that have asked me for venison recently, so I need to I need to go ahead and help them out. 
it's your duty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Hey, well, before we let these guys go or we wrap up the podcast, I did want to plug some of, uh, some of Taylor's social stuff. You can check out more about Taylor at the urban sportsman.com. Uh, the urban There's a whole bunch of stuff about him and links to his social media. Some of his videos, you can check out his YouTube. He's the urban sportsman on YouTube and then on Instagram, which he has a great Instagram account. He's always posting cool stuff. He's actually urban Bowman on Instagram. He used to be the bow hunting golfer, but he's changed his name to urban Bowman on Instagram. Uh, one of my favorite Instagram accounts actually. So yeah, you guys check out some of his stuff and, and, uh, support Taylor. He's a good dude. Yeah, definitely. All right, Scott, what else you got before we uh, wrap up this episode and, um, let the uh, listeners get to doing some actual work. All right. Well, just a reminder, after this podcast posts tomorrow morning, um, I'm going to start a thread because we want to hear from you guys and see how many shot opportunities you get at a mature buck every every season. So uh, very, very interested to hear what our our listeners have to say. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll jump in there and post my thoughts as well. Uh, that's pretty much all I have. You know, I don't have anything else. What else do you have before we go, Scott? Anything else or is that it? No, I think that's it. We... uh we got to save something for next podcast, right? There you go. There's always the next podcast. Well, we appreciate you guys listening. And obviously we appreciate the support at the podcast and at the forum. Again, if you are new to this podcast, saddlehunter.com is the greatest saddle hunting resource in the world. I know that sounds like hyperbole, but it's not Scott, right? No, it, it is the go-to resource for saddle hunting information. Yes, and the whole purpose of this podcast and the forum is to get hunters into a saddle. We believe that saddle hunting is the best way to hunt. It's the most mobile, it's the most stealthy, it's the lightest. It's There's just not many downsides to saddle hunting. So if you're new to saddle hunting or if you're new to the community, make sure you go over to saddlehunter.com and join the website and jump into the discussion. There are a bunch of dudes on there that are willing to help and have so much information or such good hunters, way better than me. Um, and, uh, you will learn a lot and you will find a really cool way to hunt. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to be a little bit selfish here for a minute, but I've, I've been following the stuff going on the Facebook page and, um, I'm, I'm so excited that we're uh, we're getting a lot of traction on there and getting a lot of new saddle users through the Facebook page. But I want to encourage all of them to come to the forum uh, because the forum is really the cash cow of information. If, if you guys have questions, come there because if they haven't been answered, um, we have a whole bunch of guys who will answer them for you. Great point. I'm so glad you brought that up. Facebook is great for so many things. I mean, it's easy to share information and it's easy to to you know introduce guys to saddle hunting which is really what the facebook page is about the uh, if you're not on the saddle hunter facebook page you should be or the group rather is it's a facebook group probably called saddle hunter uh but really scott is 100 percent right it is just the tip of the iceberg if all you're doing is listening or watching reading on facebook the forum is filled with great information so i couldn't agree more with scott jump on the forum sign up and you will be a better hunter because of it absolutely without a doubt but that's it for us tonight i think we're gonna go ahead and let you guys go we will catch you guys on the next episode of the saddle hunter podcast